Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do not do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were to keep your statutes. Again, Father, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Last week, we looked at the second of the seven churches we find here noted in the chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. Of that second church, we see Jesus' letter to this church here located in Asia Minor. We see that overall to this church, Jesus' letter to the church of Smyrna, he had Jesus, again, remember, Jesus is dictating to the Apostle John to write these things down. Jesus said to John to write down the fact that of this church, church of Smyrna, that they were rich. They were rich spiritually because they kept their eyes on Jesus and not of the world or any things of the flesh. It would, they very much stayed focused on Jesus. They were rich. And he had no criticism whatsoever of this church. There was no correction needed of this church. They were doing according to the word of God. They were living it out. They didn't not only know it, they were living it as individuals, but as a church body. There was an exhortation to stay to be faithful, to continue to be faithful, and to continue to keep their eyes on Christ. And the reward would be what? They would not be hurt by the second death. They had eternal life. They had that guarantee. They knew they had eternal life. Even when they absent from this body, they were going to be the presence of the Lord. And what a blessing reward that is, is in the promise for all of us who follow God. Now here, if you remember in the first church, Church of Ephesus, it was the lost love church. They had lost the compassion for Jesus. They knew about Jesus. They knew all the things they studied. They were walking it with him, but they just passionately walked away for loving Jesus. There was no, it was now they were in the routine of religiosity, not living for the passion for Jesus himself. And Jesus rebuked them and certainly had criticism of them. Because this church was very busy, 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 busy doing ch- church things. They were very active. It wasn't like they were sluggards sitting back doing nothing and not going to church or anything like that. They were literally busy and they were active and they were discerning, but they had left their first love. The loss, that spark of true intense love and devotion for Jesus. Not Smyrna. The church of Smyrna did not lose their passion for Christ. Yes, they were busy. Yes, they were still very active and they were still serving God. They were out there doing what God had called them to do, but they did not lose it out of passion. See, they were doing it because of their passion for Christ. They weren't doing it because of it. they belong to a church or that's what they've always done. That is how I always lived. It was a routine. Today we see this third church. Jesus' letter to the church of Pergamos. The letter was given to a pastor to read to those who who were fellowshipping in and around that church. But we will see today this church is a compromising church. And we will see a warning, an exhortation, but also a reward if they will follow and repent and follow what Jesus has asked them. Let's read here verses 12 through 17. I'll read it to you and then we will take it verse by verse. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says, He who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put in stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to, to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. As we look at the scripture today, and we take each of these verses, we find this church in Pergamos, which is about 50 miles north of Smyrna, where we were talking last week. The word Pergamos means two words, or two meanings. It means marriage, and it means elevation or tower. It speaks of the church being elevated to a place of power and married to the world. It's called the, it was called the greatest city in Asia Minor. Why? Well, when we look at history of Pergamos, we find that Pergamos was a political capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was the headquarters of the Roman military presence. And when John wrote, Pergamos had been the capital city of the region for more than 300 years. The city was a noted center for culture and education, having one of the greatest libraries of ancient world outside of Egypt. It had more than 200,000 volumes of handwritten scripture, or not scripture, but books. That's amazing to think. Each book was handwritten and had over 200,000 of them. Because it was centered on knowledge. Centered on knowing and, and capturing of all the things that this world that was written about. A side note here of this place, parchment was invented at and named after Pergamum or Pergamos that we know. That is where parchment was created to free up this library to have the enough parchment to write and to have and collect and increase the size of their library outside of Egypt where the papyrus was developed. And remember, Egypt wasn't freely giving out the papyrus to other locations, so they had to create something new to be able to capture the written word. Pergamos, extremely religious city. It had temples of the Greek of goddesses and gods that were out there, the Roman gods of Dionysus or Athena or Zeus. It also had three temples dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. Some 50 years before Smyrna, won the honor of building the first temple to Tiberius. The city of Pergamos won the right to build the first temple of worship to Caesar Augustus in the providence of Asia. And that is probably what is meant here by the fact that this was the place of Satan's seat we see in verse 13. The city of Pergamos was especially known as a center for the worship of deity of, Acle of Asclepius, which is the, uh, the medical goddess that they worshipped. This place was also the center of health care. 
This was the place where healthcare was the place to come into the inner city to get uh, care for when you were sick. And in this culture, this place, this medical school in the temple of Pergamos it became so famous because it was this Roman god of healing and sick and disease that people from all over Roman Empire would flock to Pergamos to get the relief that they needed from their disease and sickness. The symbol of this goddess that they worship, Asclepius, was one of a snake or a serpent that was twisted around a staff, which today is still the same symbol for the medical arts or the medical society or providers that we see. And you'll see it even in the army of their medical, you will see that same symbol of a serpent wrapped around the pole. Satan, of course, is likewise symbolized as a serpent. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11.3 and also Revelation 12.9 and 20 verse 2. Interesting. A place that was very political. A place that was, from, from, a, from a flesh perspective, a world perspective, it was all surrounding our medical and this was the place to come and we find this church was not only knowing who God is and they followed God, but they also married that up with the power and the prestige and the knowledge of this city of this world. We see here in verse 12, the second part of verse 12, that these things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. John here in, in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 16, John talks about the sword. John observed Jesus out of his, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now Jesus showed this two-edged sword to the Christians of Pergamos and said, this you better take note of. Understand Jesus and understand the power that Jesus has with his word. The description of the word there in verse 18 of chapter 1 helps us to associate it with the mouth of Jesus. And Jesus will confront this church with his word. They will feel the sharp edges when God opens his mouth and uses his word to, to rebuke this church. This sharp two-edged sword reminds us of the passage in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and the joints and marrow, and in the discerning of, discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you remember, we talked about two different swords. There in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, is the one which is the short dagger. It would be in their mouth when they went into fight. They would take and they can be very quick to, to go to, to battle there. But the sword that we see here in this morning in chapter 2, in verse 12, it's the sword is the one that's five feet long with the two-edged sword and which you use for battle because you could swing five feet from plus the arm length to capture it and it would just be a massive of warriors coming against you. You just start swinging this very big, heavy two-edged sword and would wipe out people in your path. It was serious. His word, the Bible, is the standard for all doctrine and practice here in this church. It should be in every church. But here at Calvary Chapel, North Carolina, it's in this church. It's the word, it's the Bible is the standard for our life, our doctrine, our practice and what we believe and what we do what we do and what we think and how we live the bible is the standard of our christian church and our christian life that is god's expectation and standard for the church here even in pergamos which they were not doing 
Anything that rises up in our lives that does not match up with God's standard in his word, it must be dealt with ruthlessly like a warrior with this big long sword, this two-edged sword, and it must be dealt with. Start swinging the sword to take it out of those who want to creep in and come against the church who wants to bring in the false teaching. It has to be dealt with. It's not dealt with from a human way. It's not dealt with a legal way. It's dealt with the word of God. You deal with false teachers by teaching them or sharing or by rebuking them using the word of God. See, the Lord Jesus judges everything by the word. The word that he spoke will judge men in the last day. And if you reject God's word now, it will judge you then. Verse 13. We see that Jesus described himself in chapter or verse 12, talked about the city that he was doing it. Remember that verse there at the end of verse 12 described him. Where do we get that from? Like all the other three churches and all seven churches. The description came from chapter one. He took chapter one. He described himself. Now he applies each of those characteristics to each of the individual churches. Here he said he was this sharp two-edged sword we saw in verse 16. Now in verse 13, I know, Jesus says, I know you. He says, I know your works. He says it to all the churches. I know what you're doing for me. I know what you're doing within the church. I know what you're doing individually. I know what you're doing collectively. I know your works and where you dwell. I know exactly where you are. Where Satan's throne is. I know the environment that you're dealing with on a daily basis. You live in a community. You live in a culture that is Satan's throne. The city of Pergamos, I understand what you're dealing with. I know where you dwell. I know how bad the city is. I know when you walked in, you could just sense in your spirit there was a darkness over this place. I know where you live. I know where I've planted you. I know where, where I bought, brought you as a child of God. I know where I brought you so that you could be a light and salt into this dark world. In the city of Pergamos. Satan's throne. And you hold fast to my name. You haven't left my name. You haven't put Jesus' name. You're not stopping in your teachings and, and your, your readings. You haven't stopped talking the name of Jesus and use the global God terminology that can mean anything in the, in the city. Remember, there's many little gods, the little G's everywhere. So they, some places they would stop using Jesus' name. Why? Because what you find individually when you're in your workplace or in your, your neighborhood, or even among your own family. You're, like, you're, you're totally fine. You're having a great time. The people invited you. We're celebrating a birth. You're celebrating you know, a, a graduation. You're celebrating, you, you might even celebrating a homecoming where God took a family member and home to Jesus. And in heaven, you're in your celebration of that. And you're doing, everything's fine with this. And you're in mixed company. There are people who are non-believers there. There's people who are kind of maybe Christians in name only. Yeah, everything's fine. Until you start talking and you mention the name Jesus. And it's like you're putting gasoline on and lighting things up and things don't go well. If that's your experience, hang in there because God knows where he has you. He knows what the work environment you're in. But he's asking the church, he's asking you, don't walk away from the name of Jesus. Don't water it down. When they ask you, who do you follow? What religion do you follow? Make sure you don't say Calvary Chapel. You say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't follow an organization or a, or a religion. I follow Jesus, my Savior. 
the one who died for me on the cross and took away my sins because I believe. I believe in that finished work that he did on the cross for me and I know I worship a living God because after the third day he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of my heavenly father interceding for me personally. And he says he knows where you are. Even if you have been planted in the Satan's throne, you're right in the, the den, man. Darkness is everywhere around you. You're dwelling in the place there. That's where God has you. He says, I don't, but you, he's, 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 he's praising them. He says, I know where you're at. I know how bad and dark it is there. But hold that, and you're holding fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith. Not your faith. Not the church faith. Not, no, no, my faith. What is my faith, he says? Who Jesus is. My faith is Jesus' faith. He says, do not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, where Satan dwells. He mentions twice that this place you're living in is where Satan dwells. That's dark. And you think our community is dark. Or the city you came from where you lived, and you think that was dark. And you thought the next place you go is going to be dark. He says, I know where you're at. It, it, do we classify that as Satan's throne, where Satan dwells like he is right there personally? That's how dark and evil it is. He says, I know. He says this to each church. I know your works. It is true that each of us, one of us, he says, I know your works. Even if there isn't much to know, I know what, even the little bit that you're doing. Let their brothers and sisters in Smyrna, right? Just like them. They were out there. They knew what they were doing. But the believers in Pergamos had suffered persecution just like Smyrna for their faith. In spite of all the intense suffering and the fact that you're in Satan's throne and he dwells there and it seems like in everybody, this church had remained true to God. They refused to drop they refused to drop the pinch of incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. They did not go there. See, remember, he's saying right up front, Pergamos was a very stronghold of satanic power. There was wickedness all around the city. They couldn't escape it. Now, what's interesting is that as you hold fast to my name, you hold fast to my faith. What I've taught you, Jesus said, what I've taught you, you have held strong to that teaching. You haven't watered it down, my teaching. You haven't deleted my teaching. You haven't added or, or subtracted what I have given you in my word. It's always important to make sure that the faith we hold, the faith that we hold on to is the faith that belongs to Jesus. Not a faith that belongs to a church body, a church organization, or a church society, or a church community, or a church this, or church. No, no. We hold solid to the Jesus teachings, the word of God. And he brings up an example of someone who lives and who was killed for his faith in Jesus. The word here that is used in the scripture here, my faithful martyr, automatically you, you automatically go to the martyr of someone who died for Jesus, for their faith. But the word here, martyr, is actually witness. He's, this word should say, Antipas was my faithful witness. Witness of who? Witness of his life in, 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 with Jesus. He was a faithful witness. 
That's how you become a martyr. You're a martyr. You're a witness. We see that very clearly in the scripture. It's the same word that is used in Revelation 1.5 here. That describes, that held the, the title for Jesus. A faithful witness. Antipas was a faithful witness. That means this man was a follower of Jesus. Who lived for Jesus. Who was like Jesus. And ultimately he became this faithful martyr who actually died for his faith in Jesus. My question for you and I, that we all should ask ourselves, am I a faithful martyr? A faithful witness of who Jesus Christ is in my life. Are you an Antipas? I know you don't want to die like Antipas, but are you at least a faithful servant right now? You sit here with me. You're a faithful servant, a faithful witness of Jesus. We all may at one point be asked to test our faith in our Jesus, and, at, and, and, and we may face the decision, are you a faithful witness or martyr for Jesus? I'm about to kill you, Corey, because of your faith, Pastor. I'm about to kill you because of that. Are you still going to be a faithful martyr in death, Corey? Or are you going to deny Jesus? I, I, trust, I trust in my Lord will give me the strength to follow him right and even to death for my faith in him. So we see here, he brings Antipas up as a faithful martyr, a faithful witness who was killed among you because they dwell in this place. That means the place they were living here in Pergamos, you could die for your faith. There's no question. Our brothers and sisters in China could die for their life. In, 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 in the Muslims world, can die for their faith. In India, could die for their faith. You can actually die in, for your faith, even probably in hidden places here within the United States. You could die for your faith. As a minimum, you'll be persecuted. Yes, you could lose your job because of your faith in Jesus. You were having a conversation at work and they brought it up and you said, oh yes, I follow Jesus. That's, my, you know, that's, my, that's who I follow. And you could potentially get reprimanded or persecuted from your organization because you said the name of Jesus. If you said you followed Satan, they wouldn't do anything for you, against you. I worship Satan. They probably would praise you. You could say, I, I worship the trees and I hug trees every weekend because I worship the creation, not the creator. And they would praise you for it because you're into the climate gig. I went out and saved another fish. Saved it from that wretched fisherman. And they would probably praise you for saving God's creation. But you mentioned the name of Jesus. And you could lose everything. And we saw that witnessed of, through the pandemic, did we not? We saw people lose their jobs because of their faith in Jesus. We must stay strong, my brothers and sisters. That's what we're being encouraged here through the word of God. We must stay strong in our belief in Jesus. Because Antipas is a beautiful example of someone living in a Satan's world and still lived right to the very end for Jesus. See, if you remember the church of Ephesus, the pastor's they stayed absolutely solid in their faith in Jesus. They stayed solid against the false teachers that were coming in and trying to take them and move them away from Jesus. And these false teachers proclaimed the right of Christians to indulge in pagan immoralities. It's okay. You can love Jesus and still love your life how you have it today. You can just go party all you want. You can have sexual immorality you want. You can sleep around. You can do whatever because you're saved. Don't worry about it. The leaders of that church 
pushed back against that false teaching, got those false teachers out. But here in Pergamos, that did not happen. The pastor stayed strong. But what, what, what went wrong is that the church body allowed false teachers to creep in among themselves who convinced the people it was okay to fall into the sexual immorality and all the other junks of this world. It was okay to mix and mingle with the powers of the world of society. It's okay to bring the politics in. It's okay to bring in worldly things. It's okay to do these things and mirror it up as long as we don't walk away from the name of Jesus, which they didn't. But they added and said it was okay to add all these other things into your life and think you're going to be okay. It wasn't going to affect the church if you allow people to come in and say, it's okay to act like the pagan world that's around us. But it's not. See, it was more important for this church, and some of them, not all of them, but some in that church, it was more important that they feared the Roman sword versus Christ's sword. Let's not get too, cra too crazy here on this whole thing and, and our stance, what the Bible says here, because what the government's going to think. We need to play nicely with the government or we won't be able to do this. And all these compromises that would come because the, they were mirroring up. Because so many churches, even today and then, let's just be really nice to the government so we can get government money and we can get government approval and government to this and a government to that. And all these political won't come here if we don't kind of be really... Let's tone down this whole thing about abortion because that's just not political. And even though they're, they have a certain title and they, they say they're for life, they really don't believe that and so they're not going to come to our church if we are really promoting the fact that life is, number, is, is important to Jesus. And so that we won't get all these really well-known and wealthy people to come to church if we start t talking and really teaching the Word of God and believing the Word of God and living the Word of God. These people won't come and how are we going to increase as a church body? This is the craziness that happens within churches today. What does the word of God says? God grows the church. God is in control of the body of Christ. He's ahead of it. We just have to be faithful to follow him. Our Savior is going to take care of us. Our Savior is going to provide for us. Our Savior is going to protect us. He's given us eternal life. So when we take a look at these things and you can see what's happening, they were doing so many things. Their works, they're in Satan. So you're like, Corey, you just don't understand. We live in Satan's throne. You can't escape it. You can't go shopping and see the, the, the perversion and wickedness that's going on. You can't watch TV. You can't be on the internet. I mean, how can someone live? Oh, let me get to that right now. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. This is Jesus telling John to write this. I have a few things against you as Pergamos, the church, that church body, the believers in this area. I have a few things against you because you have there those. Now keep the, the, look at the wording. Because you have there those. There those have creeped into the church. It's not the whole church. It's just certain those have come in. Who hold what? A couple of reasons here. Look at it who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And there are those you've allowed to creep into the church body there at Pergamos. What? Verse 15. Though, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Jesus said, I hate that. Jesus says, I hate that. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to hate that. See, he says, I have a few things against you, you Christians in Pergamos. We're rightly praised for holding fast to the name of Jesus. You were praised because keeping the, his faith in Jesus and you believed what the word of God said. You knew the word of God. At the same time, you were doing all that in the most difficult environments that you were living in the community. 
He did not excuse the few things Jesus had against them, right? They, they, they weren't going to excuse this. They we're going to put this right out there. Satan had been able to destroy them by coming, not as a roaring lion, that 1 Peter 5 a says. Sometimes Satan comes in like a roaring lion. I mean devastation. But sometimes if that doesn't work, if he cannot devastate, he will then come in serpent-like and just slither in deceivingly into the body of Christ. If he can't destroy it like a lion, he will slither in like a serpent. Here they were slithering in like a serpent. If he couldn't use violence, he tried to use violence to destroy the church. Now he's going to what? Choose alliance to come against the church. Let's get the church allying or alliance with Satan's throne environment. That's how we're going to. And he calls it out like the doctrine of Balaam. They had a mindset like the doctrine of Balaam. What is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, if you know of the history in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 22 to 24 and also 31, you know Balaam was a prototype of these corrupt teachers that we're talking about here that's crept into Pergamos. He was a true prophet of God. He spoke God's word and God gave him words. And he spoke it to the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And as the na as as nation of Israel was coming across out of Egypt and coming across the promised land, they were just, no, none of their enemies could stop them because God was empowering them. So this guy says, hey, let's find the guy. I think we can find the guy named Balaam here. Get him down here. Uh, Balak is saying, who's, you know, who's uh, powerful, the king. King of Moab. And he says, I want you to curse God's people. What? The king of Moab asking God's prophet to Curse God's people? How could that happen? He's God's, God's man. That's the whole point. Balaam was willing to get paid off. He was willing to do it. He wasn't doing it truly out of the love and the fear of God. He did it for the money and the prestige and the, the, and the position. He was in a position to be used by God, but he did it, and he used that, and he went a rogue, and he said, I'm up for hire. I'm a hire. You pay the money. Whatever who is, whoever church is paying me the most money, that's where I'll go. And so what happened is, Balaam tried, but God said, you will not curse. And every time he opened his mouth to curse, God gave him words to bless God's people. Each time, once, twice, three times, Ooh, fourth. I, I'm sitting here going, that's how hard you can be. You can say you're a prophet of God. You can say you've been walking with the Lord. You can do all these things. But when you get to a point where you go against God, one, two, three, I mean, blatantly wanting to curse God's people, be careful. You're in danger zone. Don't be cursing God's people. So what happened? Balaam was almost about to lose his, this good gig. King Moab kept increasing the price. He was, he was probably enticing him with all kinds of, bringing influential people around to encourage him, get, get, getting madder and madder each time he, he opened his mouth instead of cursing. It was actually a blessing. He was really getting torqued. But Balaam wasn't going to walk away from this good deal. So what happened? Balaam ended up telling Balak how he can actually weaken God's people. He says, you can't do it by a curse because God loves his people. You're not going to do it. But you can attack all you want through violence by cursing, coming against him. Not going to work. God's too powerful. What you need to do, Balaam says, is entice their flesh and come into alliance with them. 
take your beautiful Moab women and go have them permeate in among the young men, Jewish men of the Israelites, and watch what happens. Just send a few beautiful women in among them. While they're in there and they're enticing them, then say, hey, we can have a good time here. We're going to be good neighbors. We're just hanging out. We're having a little feast together. Just eating food from idols. And if we're going to have a little bit more fun, you need to bring my little idols out and you're going to worship my little idols, she says. Oh, the enemy knows the, the hook of a man through sexual immorality. Balaam says, when you do that, God is a just God. He is a just God. He will bring judgment upon those who go against him. Why? Because he's a jealous God. So not only is a just God, he's a jealous God, but he will bring judgment upon his people to correct them if they're going to go astray. And what happened? We see in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 29, 24,000 of those men were taken out just like that. Hello? <laughs> we do not mess around with this. But this is the doctrine of Balaam. The people believed the word of God. But they didn't obey the word of God. The doctrine of Balaam is you believe the word of God. You know who God is, but you choose to not obey the word of God. You choose to be around it and, and somewhat peripherally identify with it when you have other people who are like-minded, like other Christians. But when you're around other people, you are okay compromising and acting and, and living your life like you are not a Christian. That you're not a, a follower of Yahweh. You're not a follower of, of the Savior of the world. You only are in name only because you've gone cold. You've gone in back and you've been enticed. You've been brought in. You have elevated and married up with the world. And you've been told by false teachers, even within the church, that it's okay to live a life that goes contrary to the word of God. God still loves you. He, of course he still loves you. He died on the cross when you were wicked. Now you're carnal. Because you've been enticed and brought in back into the world and thinking and acting like you're not a Christian. Because someone convinced you. You realize today's society, there are churches walking away from Jesus and saying you can have any kind of sexual perverted life and say you're okay? Is that, are you are with me? Are you retracting with me, aren't you? Yeah, I'm not the only one who sees this. I know it. It's everywhere. That's, Pergamos. Some are holding strong, holders staying with Jesus, everything's going well, but there's some false ones coming in to compromise the weak ones that didn't know any better because they're brand new believers and they're enticing them with all kinds of things. I'm telling you, you have to be warned. And that's what I'm doing here. Through the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is warning you, do not walk in the flesh with these people. Repent, he says, as we will get to here. He says, repent right there on verse 16. Repent. But if the doctrine of Balaam, be very careful. But he also says, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We saw this earlier, if you remember, in verse 6, with the church of Ephesus, the Ephesian people, because they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, God said, I'm so happy for you because I hate it. What is the doctrine of Nicolaitans? 
Well, when you look at the word and you break it down in the Nikeo Laos, it means a, to conquer the people. What was happening in these churches, and it happened here, is that a few people came in, the clergy, the leadership of that church, they became so powerful that they ruled and dictated what the lay person, the, regu- the, the, the non-leaders of that church who came, they were ruling and running and lording over the people. Jesus said, I hate that. I hate it. Those are my people. Jesus is saying, those are my people. I'm the head of the church, head of the church body. Those people belong to me, not you clergy. You clergy, you, you pastors, you rulers, you, the people in charge of this. I am telling you, you are to be obedient to me and to serve the, my people. Not lord over them, not control their lives. No, 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 no. I hate that. But in this church, that started creeping in because they came in, all these false teachers started getting power and influence and started having dominance over the lay people, over the congregation. It should never happen. So yes, Jesus is telling John to tell the people here at this church, I rebuke against you those in there that were following the doctrines of Balaam and, and stirring that up in that church and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. But he also was rebuking those who allowed them to continue in that church. I know as a pastor, he says in this scripture, be careful if you want to teach the word of God because you're going to be... Seek, you're going to be receiving harsher judgment. Why? Because your judgment is, did you allow false teachings, things come into the church of the congregation I have put you in responsible for? I'm holding you responsible for it. And, and Pergamos, he says, I'm going to rebuke those who allow that to dwell even the slightest within the body of Christ. It should not happen. It cannot happen. We're going to stick with the word of God. Amen. And we're going to let the power of the Holy Spirit teach us all things about the word of God. You're going to test everything I say. You're going to go home and you're going to study yourself. I give you enough scripture to go back and validate everything I tell you. You wrestle that with the Lord and get it settled. But I assure you we're going to stick with the word of God. And in this healthy fellowship that we have, we know that no one who comes in here with the wrong intentions, with this false teaching of Balaam or Nicodemus, any of these false stuff, it's going to, they won't stay. Why? Because you're healthy, you know the word, and you will rebuke them if they even try. Right? You will rebuke them. Say, wait, wait, wait. Love you, brother, but you do know what the word of God says. You do know you cannot shack up with that woman and live with her and sin and say it's okay you 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 know i know you know the word and let me open the word because i love you and i don't want you to compromise here in your life sleeping around i want to teach well i've heard a teacher online you know that causes my hairs to rise when i hear that term Yeah, you're listening to a false teacher if he says it's okay for you to love Jesus and sleep around with no problem with that woman and live in with her outside of marriage. That's a false teacher. Are you with me? Verse 16. Repent. Repent means change course. <laughs> change the way you're thinking. Change your end because you think you can compromise and you can rationalize and justify why you're in sin and think you're just fine. You're, you're full, you've, been, you've, been, you've been bewitched. He says, repent or else. Woo, I don't know about you. As a parent telling your child, repent, young man, or else. <laughs> that young man should know that dad means it. What do you say? Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with what? The belt? No, 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 no. That's another time. But with the sword of my mouth, I'm going to correct them 
with the word of God. See, repent, simple word repent. It stands out. When you hear it and you say it and you read it, it, it stands out. It, one word tells you everything. Repent. Five of the seven churches was commanded to repent. It's a command. It's not an option. It's not a let me think about it first. Repent means stop immediately what you're doing and change. And get in line with the word of God. Not only are it to those who first come to Jesus, you have repent and come to Jesus and be born again, yes. But after you're born again, you still have to repent. When you stray off or get hooked or get enticed, you need to repent and come back. Or else. Unless they do repent, the Christians of Pergamos would face Jesus, who has the two-edged sword. Judgment will begin at the house of God, 1 Peter 4.17 says. When Jesus came against the Christians of Pergamos, he will confront them with his word. Antipas had felt the sword of Rome, but the church of Pergamos will feel the sword of Jesus. Sometimes as we sit and we hear the word of God taught, the sword comes in and cuts so precisely like that guy who's teaching is like teaching and talking to me directly. That's the Spirit of God talking to you. I don't know what's going on in your lives. But if the Spirit of God right now is cutting you right there to the point where you hear the word repent, Listen to the Spirit and what He has for you. You must change. Change course of action and how you think and how you act and how you live. Every aspect of your life must be in line with the Word of God. And by His grace and by His mercy, He is sanctifying you as a believer He's molding and shaping you to become more like Christ as you continue to pursue him. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you hear? Are you hearing from God right now? See, the danger of false teaching in, in, in immoral conduct still faces the church today. It faced it back then, still faces it today. So does the danger of allowing false teaching and immorality, as was the problem with the Christians of Pergamos, it should not be the problem for us because we have the word of God to go on and test all things and say, wait a minute, we can't allow this to come into my life. I can't allow this to be listening to this online or to anything else. I cannot allow that in my life because I'm going to be caught up like what Pergamos was like. You didn't deny Jesus and who he is. You're just now walking away, compromising in your life and think it's okay. But look at the promise of those who do repent in verse end of verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on the white stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So here we see, if you have overcomes that satanic spirit of accommodation, that ex Satan experience of tolerance, I'm going to tolerate that in my life or around me, this false teaching, this living that's, that's not in line with the scripture, if you walked away, they're not tolerating those things in your life anymore. You're not tolerating that being spoken into your life. You're not accommodating those kinds of things. One of the promises God says to these believers, you'll be given and receive that hidden manna. God's perfect provision. True bread of life or bread from heaven, John 6, 41. Instead of feasting on these 
things sacrificed to idols, these things that the world offers to you, the believers needed to feast on God's holy food. The bread of life found in Jesus Christ through the word. How do we know that? Matthew 4.4 and John 6.32. We must feed upon the word of God. And if not only will you receive that hidden manna, remember the hidden manna, that pot of hidden manna was also in the Ark of Covenant. And this is something of interest. Someone thought it might be even the fruit from the tree of life that we saw and talked about in that. I find that interesting. I haven't quite got there in my mind. But whatever it is, it's perfect and it's good. Then he says, you will receive from him a white stone. In the ancient world, this use of a white stone had many associations, but white is good. We see multiple references, almost 12 or 13 references of white. We sang worship songs about white, white as snow. The white robes. Jesus coming back on the white horse. We're coming back with him on the second coming on what? White horses. We're going to be in white robes. I mean, this is beautiful symmetries and symbolism all the way through here. Here we talk about a white stone and this white stone could be a ticket to a banquet, which refers to the Tessera stones. And it's a sign of or a sign of friendship or evidence of having been counted or a sign of acquittal in the court of law because in the court of law when they made decisions each one had a white rock and a black rock and whoever decides okay I think he's guilty you would put the black rock in the in the bag and at the very end they looked at the bag and they started pulling out stones and if you had more black stones than white stones you were guilty if you had more white then you were innocent I don't think it's that one I believe that stone that white stone is your ticket and my ticket to heavenly banquet I don't know about you, but I'm ready for that heavenly banquet. But not only is it a white stone, and it's this white meaning a bright light, a, it's opposite of darkness and night, but it, it's a reflection of purity and innocence. It's more about joy and triumph. When you look at the, do a word study on white and you look at all the scriptures, it's all about joy and triumph. It's all about, it's all good. It's never bad. But this stone, this white stone, has a new name on it. Oh, commentators are always debating on, is it God's name on that stone? Or is it your new name that we receive when we get to heaven on that white stone? I'll let you, I'll let you, I'll let you take that and struggle that with that with the Lord. I lean toward, I believe it's my new name that the Lord gave me. It's right there on an invitation. You ever had a banquet invitation? Mr. Wells, you're you're a guest of the following thing. And when they show up, they don't let you in and let you have that ticket. It could be a white stone with God's name on it and said, who's your your sponsor to come into the banquet? Jesus. (laughs) The reason why I don't think it's that because it says which no one knows except him who receives it. Everywhere else in Scripture, everyone knows that your name of Jesus is on you. There's no secret there. Everyone knows. Here, the one that will know is the new name that God has given you at that new banquet. Are you ready? I'm ready. One idea behind this new and secret name is that it shows what an intimate relationship we have with God. That I do know. Another idea associated with the new name is simply the assurance it gives our heavenly destination. Your name is there in heaven, awaiting for you. It's it's as as if... that is your reservation, and you're going to collect the reservation. You're showing up. Are you going to show up for your reservation? Hello? Are you going to show up for your reservation? Do you desire to keep that reservation? The question is, are you born again? Because it's the only way you're going to get a reservation. 
if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Your name and my name is on the guest list. Regardless of your background, regardless of your past, regardless of what you've done so, so, so terribly against God, if you're a born-again believer and you've repented and you have asked for forgiveness and accept him, his payment on that cross, you're on the guest list. Because you're forgiven. And you've been wiped as white as snow. Amen? Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy upon us. We thank you for the time of, of gathering here to study your word. A time for you to speak to our hearts. We were still, we were still long enough <laughs> so that you could work in the hearts of your people to speak to them. We put away the busyness of the world outside us. We got rid of the distractions. We were able to sit, be still, and to to some might be wrestling with you today, Lord. You were wrestling with this. Some are probably not real happy hearing your word today, Lord, but that's between them and you because it's your word, and your word is always true and right and good and praiseworthy. Some people didn't like it because it, you, you took your sword and you cut them, and it hurt. But, but you also will heal as they repent to you they change you forgive you've healed you right you lift them up above all of that and give them that assurance and that that ticket to heaven that banquet list is your name is on it we're going to get the stone with our name with a name written on it and it will be ours may we rejoice may we be glad and may we be encouraged to continue to go out and share the gospel with those who are lost and encourage those in the faith in the days to come. Because soon and very soon you'll be coming back for us. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen.